Opportunity and equality would definitely be something that just doesn't exist. You can always look at certain numbers, demonstrate that some of it exists, but in the greater scheme of things, and if you think female, black, and from part of any other minority group, suddenly your numbers become 0.0, you know, 1%. You know, the numbers never show that even that 1% check is, you know, is 50% smaller than your sort of counterpart. So in reality, you know, if you look at opportunity, slash equality and actually the check sizes, then you realize that you actually part of a very, very minuscule minority. I said once in my tweets that, of course I know I'm black, but I've been acutely aware that I'm black since I started in sports. And that was not by, by accident. It's literally everything else sort of reminds you what you're against. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Francisco Baptista, founder and CEO of Team Sports, a company building an AI sports platform to help team athletes enhance their performance. Francisco was born in Angola, growing up during a period of civil war in that country. He used basketball as an escape from this harsh environment, first by watching his mother play and then finding sanctuary on the courts himself. Francisco moved to Brazil for his teenage years, then on to Portugal, and now finally he's in the UK, all the while pursuing his dual passions of hoops and software development. It's the meeting of these two loves where Team Sports, with a Z as they say, was born. The company now boasts notable investors including Mark Ganey, co-founder of Strava. Francisco has a great story, you'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. Founders Live continues its traditional events that center on five startups giving 99-second pitches. And there are now events monthly somewhere in the 90-plus cities that are part of the Founders Live global network. To find out more about Founders Live or when the next event is happening near you, be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. Please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. It's free and we're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please drop us a five-star review on Apple or at podchaser.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Francisco Baptista, founder and CEO of Team Sports, a company building an AI sports platform to help athletes enhance their performance. Welcome to the show, Francisco. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. No, likewise. I'm very excited to be here, then. Awesome. So to set everything up for our audience and to get us started, please help the listeners understand exactly what Team Sports is. Sure. Team Sports is an AI platform. Sort of what we do is we translate human movement into performance statistics, and we do it using artificial intelligence. We're doing it on edge, which means you only need your, your mobile and the camera on the phone pointing to yourself. Uh, but we also do it in the context of a team sport. So if any of the listeners are thinking, my Fitbit already does that, 
yes, that's fantastic for an individual basis. But what we're doing, we created a solution that translates sports performance using AI on the context of a team. So if you play basketball, football, or rugby, or lacrosse, which I know, Danny, what a big fan, team sports is for you guys. I love it. And as a, a former wannabe athlete and a father of athletes, that feedback loop of understanding where you are in the journey can be so, so powerful. But before we get more into team sports, we want to hear more about you and your journey and where you're from, where you grew up. I know that you've had a really interesting global upbringing, so to speak. But where are you from originally? Sure. Uh, it's a long story. I'm originally, I was born in Angola. Angola is an African country, a former Portuguese colony. I'm actually sort of the first generation to born in Angola immediately after the independence. So my parents were born in the Portuguese territory. I was born in Angola as an independent country and had the opportunity to travel the world. But the exciting thing, sort of upbringing in Angola is, is sort of an, an story and a podcast on itself because it's very different than today's reality for most people, I would say. Well, give us some insights. I mean, you were born there and how long did you live there? When did, when did you leave? So I left Angola when I was 12 years old. I went to live in Brazil with my dad. So I actually grew up throughout a bloody civil war, which, yeah, it wasn't fun. And is a reality that most are not really accustomed to and uh, is yeah, very private and very difficult. I can only imagine, obviously, I have got three kids now and uh, living in the UK and often think, oh, three kids, so challenging. And I cannot imagine what it was for my parents to have three kids in the middle of a civil war. So that reality was tough. Stuff for, for, for them, of course, and was tough for us. Luckily, I have learned to play basketball because my mom used to play basketball. And so basketball kept me sort of away from all my life troubles, the troubles I could get into. I didn't because I was always keen to stay a little longer in a basketball court or run away from school and, and play for a little longer instead of going back into class. So, blessing and a curse. I could totally see how that would be a great place to escape. I mean, for most people, especially younger kids, finding that place where you can block out the world, right? Like, it's like, just I'm going to play the game. I'm going to be, you know, either one-on-one -on -one or with my teams or I'm working on my skills. I mean, my dad went through the similar thing because he's from Kenya and he grew up during that independence movement. But I'm just curious, maybe you can help us think about like 12 is old enough that you probably remember. Do you remember that time as sort of like war is just, that's just what daily life is? Or was it sort of, this is a different way of life and it's going to end at some point, but it's just going to be hard? Or did you just come to accept it as like, this is just the way life is right now? So as far back as I remember, so also remember growing up in the Civil War, you sort of grow much faster than my kids here in the UK do. So my earlier memories of war are sort of, you know, seven and eight year old. And at that point, you're not really questioning that reality compared to any other reality. You just know that is the reality and the fears that it brings, et cetera, et cetera, and the struggle that it brings. But with 12 years old, I knew exactly that was a different reality than others because Luckily, my dad was a university professor and he prioritized education over absolutely anything. So learn, 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 learn. And there was never a taboo or anything that we can discuss. So we grew up fast enough, but we also grew up understanding the policies and the politics and sort of the politics behind the war 
But having grown up, having been brought up by a family that was born in sort of in a Portuguese territory, a lot of my family sort of migrated to Portugal and we had the opportunity to travel to Portugal at early ages. And so we had a way to compare those realities and sort of my cousins living in Portugal, they had absolutely no idea what it was like be like us growing up in the countryside, you know, during a civil war. But that also created sort of a point of reference. But most importantly was that sort of the educational, uh, the education piece that my dad sort of made sure that we were always interested in learning and learning and learning and learning, sort of helped us understand early enough sort of what was happening and why it was happening. But even, you know, how to behave outside because during a civil war that is, you know, effectively two parties, you know, two opposing Angolan parties, sort of two brothers fighting for a rich territory, oil, diamonds, and resources, and power. And, uh, you know, at school, you you were brainwashed, not much different than the Cubans were or the Soviets were. So that sort of, you know, brainwashed starts much earlier at school. And we could balance that out because, you know, my dad, you know, taught us, you know, what was happening. We knew exactly sort of the heroes that came in our childhood books, sort of fighting against the enemy. The enemy was just another Angolan on the other side, you know, less deprived with access to less power, let's say, but nonetheless an Angolan. And I remember very well from very early days in my life, understanding sort of that side. There was actually, there wasn't any enemy. There was sort of this obscure enemy and the heroes they sort of portrayed in sort of our educational books at school was just, you know, you know, brainwashing kids to sort of grow up in one side or then, then the other. So, so to that, I eternally grateful to my father that was keen to make sure that we understood exactly what was happening. And so we knew how to balance that, the act and not sort of be part to political discourses outside and anything like that to sort of like, this is not a place for us. Let's go home and stay away. Or, you know, in my case, let's play basketball. That's fascinating. Uh, thanks for sharing that. So you go to Brazil. So Brazil is this place that has, you know, large collection of rich cultures and, you know, integrating populations. And there was probably this connection around language and the Portuguese aspect. But do you remember feeling like different in terms of like who you were and how you fit when you were in Brazil? I felt for the first time I was a teenager, so the first time sort of that time when you discover yourself. Brazil was an amazing experience for me because I couldn't really fit in within Brazilians and they didn't know where I fitted within sort of the social constraints they currently have around race and, and background, etc. Because I was a foreigner for all, for all the matters. My Portuguese sounded more to them like a Portuguese from Portugal than a Portuguese from Angola. So there's sort of their subconscious association with Europe, which sort of uh, places sort of a, a figure of sort of their class status, etc. And I wasn't Brazilian, so it was an amazing place to be in Brazil. I mean, the culture, the language, the people, you know, all that is on itself just amazing to watch. But I was immersed into that culture. I had the privilege to sort of almost be an outsider and I could sort of be part of any of those social groups, whether at school or outside school. So I had an amazing experience in Brazil. That's really fascinating. And I think a lot of folks, given that crossroads, right, where you're just like, I don't necessarily fit in one place. So one way to go is, well, I'm just going to try, try to wedge myself into one place as, as much as I can. 
And then another approach is what you talked about, which is, well, this is maybe a blessing in disguise. I can maneuver and, and go to different groups and integrate myself uh, different ways. So when you went to Brazil, was basketball still part of your life? Oh, I've got an interesting story to tell you. So, so my dad was in Brazil because he was doing his PhD. And my dad is called Francisco Batista. I am called Francisco Batista. So he was, you know, studying a veterinarian and doing a PhD in um, disease and veterinarian disease, etc. And so I managed, although in secondary school, I managed to enroll using his name at the university basketball team. So I guess the answer to your question is yes, very much so, yeah. So I used to play as my dad, as a sort of a university student, per se, uh, on his behalf, because we had the same name. So which was fantastic. So, you know, being that young and playing at that level it was definitely good for me and my basketball skills. Oh, my gosh. Now, talk about going to the extremes. <laughs> Were you ever discovered or rooted out as the not the academic version of Francisco Bautista? I think there were times where we played and people were like, who is this kid? He is like, he, either he's much older than he looks or he's an imposter. But no, my teammates knew that, you know, I was enrolled as my dad. Obviously, that was part of the, the, the fun and the joke and the laugh. But yeah, no, I was never discovered in the sense that like, nope, you're not the person that you say you, you claim to be. The coach knew and the, my team players knew and everyone else was like, is it going to bring you a child to this university team? <laughs> <laughs> These days in the United States, there would be like this big scandal and all that, but that's a great story. So tell us, how did tech enter your life? Like, was this something that you were drawn to early? How did you discover your interest in it? Yeah, so very early, actually. My dad, once doing his master's degree, this back in Angola, was probably 10, 11. My dad bought some programming books, some Pascal books, because he wanted to write some algorithms to help them analyze some data around his master's degree. And my brother and I consumed that book, and we had an old Schneider, which was, was, a, was a German computer, so monochromatic computer. And yeah, so my brother and I, use that computer to play game and use all the hacks that we could try to speed up the game and the processor. And that's where computing came into my life. I remember in Brazil, uh, when I was in secondary school, again, yet another great story, I think. Back then, secondary schools in Brazil didn't have computer as a class. So what they did is to hire sort of a, a third-party provider to sort of teach, you know, Word, Excel, PowerPoint in school with a small fee for the students to sort of take part in that class. And uh, at some point, the teacher left because, you know, quit his job, etc. So that class was sort of shut down because no one could teach. And the headmaster knew that I was always in that class. And I said, look, I can teach this to everyone else. And the headmaster actually allowed me to do it. So during the morning and part of the afternoon, I was a student. And the part of the afternoon and evening, I was actually teaching in my own school. So computing class. And that's where a programming sort of surfaced, I created a small software to help my colleagues slash students to type fast enough with them with both both hands and you count how many how many keystrokes you do per second, etc. Yeah, so I always had that passion both for programming and basketball. I'm hearing two interesting themes here. One is the competitiveness. So like you're playing a game on the computer and you're like, hmm, how can I get an advantage on this? And then this idea that you mentioned of your, just call it like accelerated maturity growing up in Angola, 
in your basketball, you're playing with people who are quote unquote older than you. And you're in this place where you are teaching your colleagues or fellow students. And so it's fascinating that developmental time when you were young probably gave you, despite the challenge of it, gave you this confidence and this ability to say, yeah, if I can make it through that, whether it's subconscious or not, right? Like, hey, I could do this and I can move forward. I could be at that next level, which is just fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I think that is sort of some of those elements you can draw back, sort of my upbringing and sort of the nature nurture aspect. Another aspect that I think helped me be what I am today is that traveling and meeting people with so many cultures after Brazil, I, I moved to Portugal and then to UK, is that gives you that ability to sort of adapt and be comfortable with, with differences and whether people difference, whether cultural difference. I moved to UK, I couldn't speak English, so whether it's language difference. And it gives you that ability to be able to say, actually, you know, I can mold myself to enable me to progress regardless of the environment I'm in. And I think moving to Brazil, particularly moving from Angola to Brazil, was a bit of a shock, much bigger country. I was a teenager trying to discover myself in a very multicultural place compared to back in Angola. We are a mixed-race family, but, you know, it's not anywhere near as, as multicultural as Brazil Brazil is, you know, and that definitely gave me yet another skill to build in sports, for example. I love that. And I'm fascinated that you moved to the UK without speaking English. So you, you couldn't speak any English at that time? Very basic. I think I thought I knew how to speak English because of the listen to Snoop Doggy Dog songs and, um, and R&B <laughs> and hip hop and sort of the basketball and culture, sort of American culture until you move to UK and you realize actually this is not the same. And you turn on the TV is like, what? What are they saying? <laughs> so I could articulate the very basic sentences, but if I turn on the TV or radio, I can follow through what, what was going on. Totally impressive. Well, amazing story. But we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Francisco Batista from Team Sports. Founders Live is the global venue for modern entrepreneurs. We are here to help you through these challenging times by connecting you to the people, information, and resources meant to move you forward as you start your next project. We see an opportunity to bring the resources and capital and connections to the people that need it and the people that can use it no matter where they live in the world. My honest opinion is no matter what the economic climate is in the world, Founders Life can be important. In the good times when it's booming, we're here to help grow companies and have them access capital that's flowing around the world and really be a fun, great event and global platform that powers entrepreneurship. In the tough times, we actually think we can be the answer. Given the fact that if people are actually getting laid off and unemployment starts rising, well, the choice to start their own business is front and center and Founders Live is right there to help them grow. And the entertainment is the fun. We believe business should be fun, we believe it should be casual, and we believe it should be inspirational. Founders Live is the perfect place for you to connect with other entrepreneurs and to be inspired. So we're back with Francisco from Team Sports. So Francisco, tell us about where does the idea of Team Sports come from? What was sort of that spark that said, this is a business, what, this is an idea that's something we could build? Sure. So obviously stems from my skills, my professional skills as a software engineer, but also my passion for basketball. So I always play basketball, as you heard before. 
And in the last few years, I guess the spark started by realizing that even as a basketball team here in the UK, I play as a, a Div 2 and Div 1 here originally, you know, we were interested in our sort of physical performance. However, we could only collect our physical performance individually. So someone had a Strava, you know, a few teammates had in my Strava feed. Someone has a Fitbit and someone has whatever other wearables and someone else has a gym, someone else goes for a run, etc., etc. And I couldn't really understand why don't we have something that brings all of that together for us as a team. So what is the team performance? And then once you sort of ask yourself that, you realize that, you know, actually there are solutions out there for teams, but they've been designed for the very professional teams and sort of the reaches, you know, the very few sports played in the world. And so I thought, this doesn't make sense. I need to change that. And so I actually started Team Sports by creating a wearable, an ultra-wideband wearable. So initially, I thought the best way to track people playing indoor sports, and in this case, my basketball team. In the UK, it's not sunny, as you can imagine, all the time. So we play indoors without GPS and sort of 4Gs, etc. So I use ultra-wideband instead. And that worked. It was a great prototype. We could measure players 100 times better than GPS. But to turn that into a scalable solution, you know, the business wasn't there. And so we pivoted into, into computer vision. But the root of the idea really was I play basketball in, as a team. There is a ever-increased appetite for performance data in many, many ways. People can collect the performance data, but nothing was bringing it together for us as a team, but most importantly, affordably. So the pricing point needed to be right because you know we know the Premier League, we know the NBAs, we know the NFLs. And in fact, the vast majority of sports played in the world today don't have that sort of resources and that sort of money. Sort of these local lacrosse teams, you know, us local basketball teams or you know, local football teams, or even, you know, your sort of college team, your sort of primary school team, your secondary school team, sort of what is the platform to help them as a sports team at a young age to help them sort of bring the sports technology that helps them and their coaches sort of understand how they can improve so that maybe some of them want to become professionals and, and the gap between them as an amateur and the professionals when it comes to sports technology will be much, much shorter. And so this is what sort of the idea stems from. Be able to create a platform that was available to any sports enable us to track our performance as a team, improve our game, you know, help us stay organized, help us stay fit, understand what happened in the game, and sort of create a sort of true feedback loop because our AI enables sort of that accountability piece. So if your coach says, you know, hey, Dan, you need to do 10 push-ups and you only do two push-ups, there's no way you can fudge the other eight push-ups, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it is like I, you've done what you've done. But there is accountability, but I like to put it as sort of as a meaningful conversation. Now your coach really knows there is no point to say to Dan to do 10 push-ups because he can only do two. But let's have a meaningful conversation about how can we improve from two to three instead of sort of sort of a hopeful, I said to Dan to do 10 push-ups. I hope he did, he did it. If he didn't do, I don't have a way to track. And so, you know, here we go in circles without truly sort of having those meaningful conversations. And that's what team sports is. And um so that's what it stems from. Makes a lot of sense. And I totally get that evolution. Take me back to that time, though, when you did the experiment with your team. So obviously, it had some impact and it worked enough for you to say, hmm, there's something here. Do you remember the decision point in your mind where you said, wow, there's a business here, there's a company that I could build? And like, how did that decision come to be 
was it really from that experiment or did you have to go and talk to people or what was that sort of switch where you said, okay, I'm going to go build a company to do this? I think some of the mysticism about business is that actually that isn't a switch, that is a process. And that process is only true if you sort of find ways to sort of invalidate your thinking, whether it's through your team, whether it's through understanding the market, whether it's through asking, you know, what people are thinking. And so to me was, I was certain that I wanted to build something that I could clearly see didn't exist in the market. I thought hardware was the solution. And if I thought this was just a switch on and off, I would have continued to pursue the hardware uh, solution today and probably be less successful than we are now. At least I know I would be, you know, less off money-wise because hardware development costs a lot of money. So the process really is continuous sort of question yourself, question the business model, question sort of the validity, you know, and sort of if you can't find enough answers to justify your direction, you're probably going in the wrong direction. And so the only thing that I did, and I think another way to look at it is that for me was there is no reason why a grassroots, an amateur or a semi-pro team does not have access to sports technology as a professional has. There is not really a lot of, other than sort of the science from a technology standpoint, they're not really doing sort of anything that is rocket science. The technology is available to, to everyone and I have got the technical skills. So for me was actually what I want is to provide sports teams with sports technology, affordable sports technology to help them improve. So in that sense, hardware was just one way to get there. But the process is to continue to validate and question yourself. Is this right? Is this going to work? How does this scale? How does the business model work? Will I be able to raise an investment? Can I rally a team to sort of buy into the vision? That vision is a hardware, etc. And then if you get more no's than yeses, you sort of need to sort of adapt and try to find more yeses than no's. There will always be no's. The no's is always the, the uphill struggle for a startup. There are always plenty of no's, but will be sort of more yeses around your gut feeling and the things that actually make sense for you to do the next step. Even if that step is sort of a, a small step, you know, there will be enough yeses for you to do that step. And if you carry on doing this, you sort of keep progressing in sort of this wobbly sort of journey. But at any point, you can look back and you will know that you're further from where you started. So I don't think there was really a switch. That is sort of a constant validation on the model, on the solution, on the applicability, on am I solving the problem? So tell us about what's the business model. And you talked about many different types of teams or stages of teams. Are there any particular customer profiles that are sort of your sweet spot now or that you started with as well? I think team sports does not make sense if you sort of play your sort of recreational sort of lacrosse on Sunday with some teammates. That team sports is not for you. At that stage, any data point will be just enough because really it's, it's a complementary. The, the biggest value that you draw from that is mostly your social sort of aspect of playing that sport with friends. Team sports sweet spot is sort of a div two, div ones college leagues, sort of that, where sports and competition are taken seriously enough. And at that point, any time games on sort of enabling sort of the team, but also any data points or any metrics could, you know, help you get sort of an edge comparative to other teams. And that's our sweet spot. Um, having said that, 
we have got uh, professional teams using team sports, but those are professional teams like rugby teams, which don't have the sort of resources that the NBA, the NFLs, and the Premier League have. So for that matters, a professional lacrosse team uh, potentially could use team sports because that would be the right pricing point for sort of their affordability. Any other tools that provide sort of the same sort of solution for teams, they are probably just looking at the pros of the world. And often they say, request a demo. And we've got an open platform. Our model is very simple. Is a translate now. It's a $4 per player per month or on a season a subscription is only a $3 per player per month. And you've got a way to stay organized. All the AI to help you and your teammates to stay fit. Most importantly, that data is shared with your coach and your coach can influence your training and the in-game analysis. So at the end of the games, if you guys upload your games, you can create highlights, your coach. We've got some cool tools that the coach can draw on a video, sort of indicate why the set play broke the part or why the set play was amazing. And the coach can share back with the players. You can go thumbs up, thumbs down, but learn visually sort of what happened during the game. And we've got all the tools that the coach can turn that, that video, that game, into more stats, which sort of form the in-game statistics. And all of that is available for the same pricing point of $3 per player per month. So very simple pricing point, no hidden fees. You know, what you see, what you get, you get access to the full product. Bring 10 players or bring 20 players, nothing is hidden. Great. And so I'm curious about the input mechanisms and how does the platform take in the data or like you mentioned hardware in the past, right? There's something you looked at. Do you integrate with other hardware or do you rely on self-reporting? How does the input side of it work? So our own input side is through the AI. So you point the camera on your phone to yourself, do some exercises and that input data. So number of reps, number of sessions, the duration, which type of exercise, fastest rep, slowest rep, etc., etc. So that is our primary, our own proprietary input data into the platform. Having said that, we are also integrating with Strava because we know that the benefit of sort of going for a run, you might not want to do some push-ups, but you might want to go for a run. But the GPS tracking, bringing that into the platform, so that gives you our pace and, and your distance. When I mean gives, gives it to you, Give it to your teammates because on the app you work together, you can see what one another is doing. But most importantly, expose that data to the, to the coaches. But we are also now integrating with Zebac. Zebac is a hardware provider based in Colorado in the US. And they effectively have got specialized equipment to measure football players' income performance. So how fast can you run 110 yards or 20 yards or 40 yards or 60 yards? How fast can you do a three-point cone drill? And all that data now is coming into the platform, effectively enriching sort of the player profile, but also giving the coaches more data points to make informed decisions around the player. So that is the sky is sort of the limit in sort of where we can potentially bring data points into the platform. For us, the mission needs to be still, are those data points contributing to the team improve their performance? in the understanding of the game and to get better. If the answer is yes, that's in line with our mission, that's perfect alignment with our business. If the answer is no, we sort of a vanity metrics, let's say calories, you know, how many calories you burn in your Fitbit, so we know that. 
I don't think that would help you win a lacrosse game. How many calories you burn during the week or how many steps you've done. Any physical activity is physical activity. And there is obviously the aspect of physical activity for individuals that might not be able to run, which is fair. But for us, it needs to make sense. Is this helping the player, the team, and the coach? It sounds amazing. And you're totally right. I think there's a great opportunity, right, of that balance between progress and perfection. And what's that? There's some term in, in physics, right? Like if you over measure something, then that act of measuring actually distorts the thing you're measuring. Yeah, I guess it's over engineering for us. So we don't want to over engineer a solution that sort of, you know, pulls data from all sorts of places. The reality, we would have more data points than we could potentially analyze. But let's assume that we could analyze all those data points and make sense out of those. Actually, that might not make any sense for you to win your lacrosse game. So, you know, and let's say we integrate with Fitbit, you know, definitely I would love to integrate with Fitbit. But how many teams use Fitbit by default on sort of any extra activity? And so, and then that might not make sense if two people in a team have got a Fitbit and the, the remaining doesn't have, then that doesn't really make sense to integrate with Fitbit. So it needs to make sense for our vision and um, to have those data points. Um, otherwise, you know, it becomes a bit of a vanity, right? So you make a platform maybe for data analysts, which team sports is not for. Right. So tell me, Francisco, so let's assume you're going to be a wildly successful company and it's five years down the road. It's been a success. Dan comes back and wants to interview you and say, wow, how did things go, Francisco? Was it a success? And you say, yes. How are you going to define success? What is your vision for where you want this company to go? I think there are two ways to look into sort of success. I think I definitely want to see this problem solved. I want to live in a world where my kids will have a sports passport. When they start playing, you know, whatever sport they decide to play at school or in the local community club, or if they decided to go sort of semi-pro, their road to get to professional or semi-pro will be supported by a platform like Team Sport. This is what success looks like. I think there are ways that could be, I guess, more successful if a brand like Nike or Under Armour or Adidas decides to use our technology because they do have access to sports market around the world and our technology can only benefit those players and those teams in, in those markets anywhere. So that is also that form of success. So how can we accelerate in five years? Who is going to help us accelerate team sports so that sports technology is available to everyone at any level, anywhere in the world? So that is definitely what would be success look like for us. I love the ambition and very well said, uh, tremendous vision for sure. So we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Francisco Baptista from Team Sports. Founders Live is the global venue for modern entrepreneurs. We are here to help you through these challenging times by connecting you to the people, information and resources meant to move you forward as you start your next project. We see an opportunity to bring the resources and capital and connections to the people that need it and the people that can use it no matter where they live in the world. My honest opinion is no matter what the economic climate is in the world, Founders Life can be important. In the good times when it's booming, we're here to help grow companies 
and have them access capital that's flowing around the world and really be a fun, great event and global platform that powers entrepreneurship. In the tough times, we actually think we can be the answer, given the fact that if people are actually getting laid off and unemployment starts rising, well, the choice to start their own business is front and center and Founders Live is right there to help them grow. And the entertainment is the fun. We believe business should be fun, we believe it should be casual, and we believe it should be inspirational. Founders Live is the perfect place for you to connect with other entrepreneurs and to be inspired. So we're back with Francisco Bautista from Team Sports. So let's switch gears a little bit, Francisco, and talk a little bit about fundraising. What has been the fundraising journey for Team Sports so far? It's been great. All things considered, I think we raised our pre-seed round. We started fundraising last year in February, sort of mix of lockdown. In fact, we raised funding from investors that I never met face to face. So that was on itself sort of an achievement. I was also positively surprised that there are so many angles to team sports and how some investors saw what we were doing in terms of I really want to live in a world where unlike founders like you sort of trying to disrupt sort of the market and bringing sort of new solutions in a new way of thinking from investors that thought actually you know what you've done here is an amazing I can see you know five years down the line this will be awesome and others that saw actually our AI core technology could be applied to other aspects like um, physio and etc. So from a fundraising standpoint, we've been quite successful in raising our pre-seed round. We've got angels that spend a great deal of time sort of helping us make sense of what we were doing and sort of next steps at all stages, including hiring, you know, and so on. So very tactical decisions to sort of strategical decisions. Now, having said that, I'm still a black founder trying to raise sports in an AI business, no holding sort of a any university degrees or anything like that. So had my profile, you know, statistically speaking, if my profile was not like that, I would have been more successful, or at least I would have raised a lot more money. So that, in that sense, that still is a reality in terms of fundraising for a black founder, unfortunately. There is definitely a lot more space for having those conversations. There's a lot more space to sort of, you know, face those numbers and those statistics, you know, from the get-go, but still not an easy task. And I've got examples of founders that started and attended the same accelerator as I did and were able to raise a lot more with having a lot less. You know, admittedly, you can't compare apples and pears and no business are different and all founders are different, but it has been um, interesting, also an opportunity for self-learning. And it was for me because puts you in sort of in that sort of perspective sort of am I speaking to someone that is looking at me because of my words or because of someone else for something else and but also I've learned so much about cap tables and investment and shares and something I'd never had an experience with and you know when not to speak to VCs and why not to speak to VCs and when to speak to angels and why to speak speak with angels but also you know what is an angel network if you asked me two years ago I was like what let me google this uh, <laughs> you know if you ask me now I was like yes I know what an angel network is and sort of you know you sort of get accustomed to the lingo and the language but also having you know a data room where if you have an investment conversation sort of you know 
how to follow on from those conversations. So what, what is my data room? Again, two years ago, I was like, what data room? What is that? Is it a database? Like, no, no, it's just a folder where the investors can find, you know, information about your business, your tech, you know, etc., your team, you know, etc., etc. can dig deep into your business without sort of, you know, standing in front of you in a pitch or just in a deck. So it's been a learning curve for me as a founder and for the rest of the team. I think we were successful. We definitely know out of the woods. We're still raising, like most startups still are raising. But we have got some, an impressive set of investors as we stand. So I think that speaks of you know what Team Sports is and how we put it together. So tell us, though, I mean, I think a lot of black founders have the similar journey, and I don't want to gloss over the fact that, you know, there is a long, there's a long process. And like you said before, there's a lot of no's. Tell us about the first investor that said yes. You don't have to necessarily name them if, if you don't want to, but just the experience of how did you get to them? How did you connect with them? What did they echo back to you about why they were so excited about investing in you? Because I think a lot of people wonder, what is the signal? It's not always clear, like, and I think when they look backwards and they say, oh, yeah, I should have recognized that person was really interested or that person was clearly telling me they weren't interested. But tell us about those first investor experiences that sort of were successful. So I think there's a couple of things that I've learned from those early investors. So first is that I genuinely approach people and ask for advice. Yes, in the back of my mind, I knew I needed to raise some funding, but just by saying so, I knew that is a lot I did not know about raising funding. So really what I needed was advice. So my very first investors, and Lisa has been not just an investor, but a great mentor. I approached Lisa and I said, I genuinely just need some advice. I think this is where we're going, but let's just have a chat about team sports. And if you could spare any, any time to talk, and so I think that's really important because the signal there for someone is he's someone that is opening to learn and maybe have deeper conversations. But the flip side is that you really must be, as a founder, open to learn and open to sort of be guided and open to sort of demonstrate that, you know, that's not a waste of time. That's really, really important because the worst thing you have is you ask for advice, but really your mind is sort of, I need your signature in my cap table. And you receive some advice and you're not able to demonstrate that you're actually listening to that advice because your mind, you're asking for A, but actually you really want B. And so that for me is really important. And I think genuinely when I ask for advice from Lisa, I really wanted some advice. Lisa then introduced me to Rand Fiskin again for some advice. And they voluntarily then offered to invest in team sport. So, so they took that step. So Lisa is, just so the audience knows who you're talking about. Yes, Lisa is one of my early investors and advisors. In fact, if you look in LinkedIn, you'll, you'll find the Lisa profile. And uh, I wrote extensively about sort of my fundraising journey. And just to go back to the signals there, I think, is the authenticity really that transpired. So, And I think that, for me, made a difference. Made a difference not because I intentionally put an effort to be authentic, but that is what I've heard back from those early investors when I decided, all right, I want to share my experience fundraising with other founders. I want to pick a few lessons and give some practical advice. They said to me, we invested because, you know, you are an authentic founder. You are, you know, who you are. So there's no sort of 
masks and, and etc. And so if you're looking to fundraise, go and meet as many people as you can. If you ask for advice genuinely, sort of listen to that advice because that is really important to be able to listen and demonstrate that you're listening. That gives the right signals to those advisors to become investors or genuinely sort of introduce you to other people and say, these guys, you should invest on them because I can't invest in them. Maybe I don't have the cash, but you should because if I had the cash, I would invest in these guys. They are so authentic. They're so genuine and they believe in what they're doing and so on and so on. But those key investors made a huge difference for me because then you sort of get introduced to someone else and then introduce someone else. And, and then I was introduced to Mark Gaining, the founder of Strava, who now is an investor in Team Sports. So also I would say to anyone looking for funding is you gotta, you gotta ask, you know, you gotta be out there. You gotta be able to say, I am fundraising and I'm ready to have a conversation with anyone about funding. That's also important. So. Being an, unlike a founder and sort of, you know, being a black founder, you know, underrepresented is already hard for us to fundraise. So you also need to look for alternative ways to fundraising and, you know, use Twitter, use LinkedIn, you know, Medium. You know, there are other ways to be able to understand who out there might be an investor. But most importantly, you got to ask. You got to be out there. You got to ask. You got to listen. Yeah, be authentic. I love that. And yeah, that's definitely some good themes there. Authenticity, advisability, the idea of pursuing the networks that boomerang from other networks that uh, of the people who become your early champions. And I think that's great advice because a lot of times, especially now, everybody's looking for the playbook, right? Like here's the perfect pitch deck and here's the perfect outreach email and these kinds of things. And I think there's some merit to that in terms of level setting and not trying to create too much friction for the person that you're trying to reach. But what you just talked about trumps all of that, right? Being yourself, being somebody who listens, somebody who can take advice and have a learning mindset and is open, right? And so I think that's a great lesson for a lot of folks. I would just also add to that, if I may, which is obviously you hear a lot about look for investment, at the right stage, you know, what is the right stage? And all companies are slightly different. So at the pre-seed stage, my vision and myself as the CEO and founder sort of bears a lot on that investment because we saw pre-revenue. So we don't have the numbers to back the traditional investment funding things out there. So really, you know, that authenticity then suddenly becomes a, an ace on all the aspects that you sort of all the levers that you have to leverage sort of that funding and that connection. That's but also demonstrate progress. Being able to execute is really important. So be able to say, we're going to be doing this in our algorithm and then be able to come back and say, hey, let's touch back again. By the way, that thing that I said I'm going to do, we're not just done it, but it's actually live. And by the way, someone else is using You know, next we're going to be doing that stuff. When you go back next time, it's like, oh, you know, the second team I said, no, we've done it. No, we've just done it and delivered. And, and you'll be surprised, actually. People keep track of that and keep track to my LinkedIn updates, to my Twitter updates. So they are watching sort of that demonstration of progress and execution. Can you actually deliver on that? And even if your goals are sort of set by yourself and they are piecemeal, demonstrate that you can deliver those piecemeal and can execute in your own vision is really key. Yeah, I love that. It's really simple in its message, but it's something that execute with precision is difficult. So one quick question, maybe not so quick, I don't know. 
If you could change one thing about the ecosystem or the marketplace for the better for black founders like yourself, could snap your fingers, wave a magic wand, what would that be? That's a really a tough one. I think definitely sort of opportunity and equality would definitely be something that just doesn't doesn't exist. You can always look at certain numbers demonstrate that some of it exists, but in the greater scheme of things, and if you think female, black, and from part of any other minority group, suddenly your numbers become 0.0, you know, 1%. You know, the numbers never show that even that 1% check is, you know, is 50% smaller than your sort of counterpart. So in reality, you know, if you look at opportunity slash equality and actually the check sizes, then you realize that you actually part of a very, very minuscule minority. I said once in my tweets that, of course, I know I'm black, but I've been acutely aware that I'm black since I started in sports. And that was not by by accident. It's literally everything else sort of reminds you what you're against. There is a big mountain that you are against and you have to climb. And it just because just so happened that I'm black. And that is very, very tough to swallow. And people don't really realize how tough to swallow it is. I think you can read, you can really, you can get informed about, but sometimes when you are in my shoes and many other founders that you have interviewed, Dan, when you are in our shoes, then it's just a very, very tough to swallow. And so I would say there is a long way to go for the market to be provide the same opportunities to, to black founders. And if I could snap my fingers, that's what I would, would do. So I want to compete like for like with anyone else because of my skills and the things that I described earlier, my ability to deliver, my ability to write AI algorithms without sort of having a PhD and my ability to learn English without being taught, my ability to create a team in the shoestring budget. You know, you know, all those things are the, the sort of the demonstrate sort of how far I can go provided the right set of opportunities. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing that. And uh, couldn't agree 100% more. That's why I do do this podcast and to showcase that there should be equality. There should be equity and opportunity. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. We're coming up to the end of our time together, Francisco. But before we go, I want to definitely give a shout out to Unfound Nation and see if there's ways that we can be supportive for you or for Team Sports. Definitely. If you are listening to this, and I'm sure you are, all of you, download Team Sports app, which is Team Sports in one word, not with an S, with a Z at the end. It is an app store, an Android store. Give it a try. Give it some feedback. If you're part of a sports team, then get your coach to join into the platform because then the magic really happens. And if you are looking to invest in a business of the future that wants to change it to set the sports industry, everyone else on the planet, please give us a shout. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to chat to you, both investment and business opportunities. And do you want to share anything, uh, your social handles or any other ways to get a hold of you? Is Team Sports altogether with a Z, not S, in any social media, uh, you'll find us. There is no way to, to make a mistake. Same way you look for the app, is the same way you'll find us on Instagram, on uh, Twitter, on LinkedIn. Look for The Shield and you'll find Team Sports. That's some good branding there. That's what I like to see for sure. Well, thank you so much, Francesco. This has been an awesome conversation. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Dan. No, it's fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. We'd like to thank our guest, Francisco Baptista, and our sponsor, Founders Live. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Quijana, with audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to, that's listen T-O, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. And make sure to tell your friends about us. We appreciate every new listener. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am Dan Quijana, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.